Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 31 tonight. Jeremiah 31 is a pivotal passage in Jeremiah and indeed in the whole Bible because it is the introduction of the new covenant. But we're not going to get to that tonight. We will address the new covenant in many of its implications in a couple of weeks. It took us two weeks to get through chapter 30, but Jeremiah 30 and 31 are a continuation. Jeremiah 31 starts with the phrase, at that time, declares the Lord. So it is a continuation of what was said just previous to it in order to identify which time God is talking about. One of the things that I really like about Jeremiah 30 and 31 is that if you'll just read it for what it says, it will clear up a whole lot of your Israelology. It will also expose the confusion and indeed the lie of much of modern evangelicalism's approach to Israel and prophecy and what God intends to do with Israel long term. The common theologies that are bandied around today are things like, well, God is finished with Israel. He's done with Israel because they have rebelled against him, chased after their idols, broke his law, committed their adulteries against him, and therefore he is done with them altogether. But in reading Jeremiah 30 and 31, that's obviously not true. These two chapters also expose the error of all replacement theology. Some of the online replacement theologians play a semantic game where they say, oh, we're not really teaching replacement theology because we're not saying the church replaces Israel. We're saying the church has always been Israel. So see, no replacement. But that's just a word game. They're still essentially taking the promises of the Old Testament and rather than applying them to national Israel, they apply them to the church, spiritualize them in some way, and find fulfillment of them in the church. But you can't really do that with Jeremiah 30 and 31. If you just read what it says, God keeps identifying the particular people group that he is talking to. And he does that through the use of particular terminology. He refers to Israel collectively as Jacob. The church is never referred to as Jacob. But then he also talks about the northern and the southern tribes. In fact, the new covenant, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that's why it's so important to understand that Old Testament nomenclature that God is talking to the northern tribes, the scattered tribes, and the southern tribes. The 10 northern tribes went into the Assyrian captivity and then have never been returned to their homeland. The southern tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and the uh, Levites that work in the temple there, they are the people who were kept intact until the coming of Jesus because he had to come from the tribe of Judah. But those northern tribes who go by a series of nicknames, they're sometimes called Samaria, they're sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Mount Ephraim, the house of Israel. That language of Ephraim is really, really important. It's going to come up here again in chapter 31. And so we need to know some of the background, some of the history very, very briefly Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, he had 12 sons, and his first 10 sons collectively hated Joseph. Joseph was born from Rachel, who was the favorite wife that Jacob had. 
And so they beat up and sold Joseph into slavery. He ends up second only to Pharaoh through a series of dream interpretations, through a series of miraculous interventions on God's part. And then his brothers come and stand before him, and that is the methodology through which God brings all 12 tribes into Egypt in order to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham that they were going to go into a land where they weren't known and they were going to serve there for 400 years. And he got them there through using the hatred of the 10 brothers. I'm saying 10 only because Benjamin was the younger brother of Joseph and wasn't among the 10 that ganged up against Joseph. But then Joseph, while he was in Egypt, married an Egyptian woman, and he had two sons whose names were Ephraim, or Ephraim, and Manasseh. And then when Jacob was brought to Egypt, it was time for him as he was dying, as he leaned against his staff and he was mostly blind, they brought the two sons of Joseph to him, and he was going to hand out the birthright blessing. And Joseph put his eldest son, Manasseh, at the right hand of his father. And then his father reached out his hands, wittingly crossed them, and put his right hand, the hand of blessing, on the head of Ephraim. Joseph stopped him and said, no, father. And he said, I know what I'm doing. And he gave the birthright blessing to Ephraim. And that is just such an important part of Israel's history that people overlook in the vast majority of approaches and sermons that I've ever heard uh, that are Israelogically speaking. It is Ephraim who still has the land blessing, the birthright blessing, and that blessing is not completed. That promise from God is not brought to fruition until Ephraim, the northern tribes, are back in their land too. Uh, It's a great thing historically that we see that Jews, Judahites for the most part, were brought back into the land of Israel, 1948, post-World War II. And people got very excited and said, see, that's the fulfillment of the Bible. The Jews are coming back to their homeland. Well, that's a, a foreshadowing, perhaps, of what God is ultimately going to do. But that's not all 12 tribes. And until Ephraim is back and uh, occupying their land in safety, you still can't say that all these promises that God has made to Israel have come to their complete fruition. Well, in chapter 31, God is going to refer not only to the restoration of Jacob, which is that heel catcher name reminder of Israel's sinfulness, but he's going to bring up Ephraim here. Specifically, and when he does that, he's talking to the northern tribes, but he's also making reference to the fact that Ephraim has the birthright land promise. And so he's going to call Ephraim his eldest son, and he's going to talk about his love for Ephraim. And the whole point of that oldest son, my firstborn son, the whole point of that language is to say he's the firstborn. He's the one who has the rights of the firstborn. He's the one that has the birthright blessing. He's the one that has all these promises of land inheritance. And so Jeremiah is going to bring all of that up here in chapter 31. And if you don't know that background, if you don't know that history then you really don't know what Jeremiah is talking about or why God is bringing these things up. And if you just read consistently what he is saying in context with those previous promises in the Old Testament, then there's just no way to get to, yeah, but that's the church. Instead, you have to admit that God is talking about a specific people group. That specific people group is Jacob, is Israel, is all 12 tribes, is Ephraim, is the northern tribes, collected from all the places that God has scattered them, brought them back to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, planted them in that land of Samaria that he has given them in perpetuity, an unconditional promise that he has made to Abraham. All of that is kind of brought to a head, to a conclusion in Jeremiah 31, and the promise of a new covenant. So that was just like a quick sweep through 
Old Testament Israelology, just so that we can get some sense of what's being said here in Jeremiah. Now, in order to start with at that time, we have to know what time he's talking about. And really, that takes us back to chapter 30, verse 18. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. He's not talking about the church there. I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Israel. Collectively, the 12 tribes, I will have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin. And the palace shall stand in its rightful place. And from them shall proceed thanksgivings. And the voice of those who make merry. And I will multiply them. And they shall not be diminished. I will also honor them. And they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly. And their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all their oppressors. And their leaders shall be one of them. And their ruler shall come forth from their midst. And I will bring him near and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And for the last two weeks, I've been pointing out that that is the essential element of what God is saying. That that people group, Jacob, Israel, collectively, those 12 tribes, especially those 10 northern tribes that he has scattered to this very day, he keeps declaring there's a day coming where I will be their God. In other words, they will admit that Yahweh is their God, and they will be his people. They will operate as his people. They will function as his people. They will worship him as his people. There's going to be unity between them once again, Covenant promises are going to come to fruition in that particular people group because they are the recipients of the original promises. And so God keeps saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And pay attention to how often he keeps saying that. And he's going to punish those nations that have ever fought against them. And behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. And in the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord. Now, now you see the connection. In those latter days, when I have regathered Israel, this is what they're going to be like. And now he's going to describe the joy that is going to break out among those people when they recognize that it is Yahweh who has restored them and brought them back to health and prosperity in their own land. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. There it is again. Mm -hmm. He keeps saying that over and over again. I will be the God of the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. What's he referring to there? Well, he's talking about the same thing that Daniel has talked about, Jeremiah has talked about, this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again that Jesus himself talks about in Matthew 24. And Daniel and Jeremiah and Jesus all say that there's going to be a group of people living there in Jerusalem who are going to flee out of Judah and they're going to find safety because those are the places that the little horn, the Antichrist, that final world ruler, a place where they don't get to. That's Ammon, that's Moab, that's Edom. And so there is a remnant of Israel who is going to go into the wilderness in order to avoid the sword of the time of trouble that is coming, the bloodshed that is coming, and they are going to be found in the wilderness and by the grace of God, by the kindness, the chesed, the goodness of God, they are going to be found in the wilderness. And then when God finds them, he makes this astounding declaration. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Okay, so can we say so far then that Israel, because of their rebellion, Israel, because of their chasing after other gods, their adulteries, Israel, because of their breaking the law of God, that God has then permanently turned his back on them and is done with them and has now turned his attention exclusively to the church. Can we say that based on what we're reading here? No, because God himself just said, I'm going to go find those very same people that are hiding in the wilderness, that are surviving the sword and the bloodshed that is coming their way. He's going to go find them in their rebellious state, in their sinfulness. And he's going to say to them, far from giving up on you, I've always loved you, despite the fact that you're like that. Because my love doesn't change because I don't change. And I have set my love on you. Therefore, my love does not change. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, because of my loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. I have gone and gotten you. Now, I have oftentimes quoted that from God. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Because that is true of all the people God has ever loved. If God has ever loved you... If he ever loved you enough to write your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, if he has ever bestowed that kind of beneficent grace on you, that wasn't a mistake. He did that on purpose, and that love is going to remain on you. He's not going to change his mind, and you're not going to change his love just because you act up, and you're going to act up. And I didn't mean to look like right at anybody when I said that, but you're going to act up. And when you do, it's real typical for us as human beings to say, how could God love me now? Because look at what I've done. Look at what I've said. Look at how I've acted. But it's so good to know that the love of God is a permanent love based on the unchanging nature of God, and that if he has ever bestowed his love on you, it is an everlasting love that does not change. Look at everything we've read in the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah. Israel were bad, 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 and bad. And yet God's reaction to them is, but I've still loved you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, since you've rebelled against me and broken my covenant, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to construct a new covenant based on grace, based on the finished work of my son, based on a substitutionary atonement. And he gives that covenant specifically to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Because he's loved them with an everlasting love. And there's no way that you get to shoehorn the church into those promises because that doesn't work with the language. Look at the things that occur as a result of God saying to this particular people group, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He then says, again, I will rebuild you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. That's who he's talking to. He addresses them repeatedly by name. A moment ago, he called them Jacob to remind them of their sinful heel-catching ways. Now he calls them virgin of Israel. These adulterous people, I've used the word adulterous a few times tonight on purpose because I wanted to remind you that God kept accusing them of their adulterous ways, and yet he refers to them in his love as virgin of Israel. It's just kind of astounding language. That is the grace of God, the kindness of God, who could take a sinful nation like Israel or a sinful person like you or me and say, I'm going to wash you so completely that your sins and your rebellions and your adulteries against me are going to be as white as snow. It's an astounding grace. But that same grace that we are all counting on is the same grace that he's proclaiming here to national Israel. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you shall take up your tambourines and go forth with dances of merrymaking and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards 
on the hills of Samaria. That's very specific. That's not the church. That's Israel being returned to their promised land, the same land that Abraham was promised in perpetuity. The planters shall plant and enjoy them. For there shall be a day when the watchman on the hills of Ephraim shall call out. Ephraim is the northern tribes. Those northern ten tribes at some point in the future, their watchmen, the men who are stationed on the walls looking for the encroachment of the enemies, getting ready to announce anything that's coming toward their city. Instead, the watchmen are going to say on the hills of Ephraim, arise, let us go to Zion. Let us go to Jerusalem, to Yahweh, our God. The day is coming when Israel, the scattered northern tribes, are going to recognize that Yahweh is their God. They will be his people, and they will gather at the place where God has placed his own name, and they will go there to worship him, and that will be the cry of their watchmen. It hasn't happened yet, but it has to. For thus says the Lord, verse 7, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. And shout among the chiefs of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Okay, that's quite a prayer. Have you ever prayed it? Have you ever prayed to God, just do what you said you were always going to do? I think, by the way, that when Jesus was on the planet and said to his Jewish followers, when you pray, pray like this, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That encompasses all this stuff. Why would Jews be praying for the coming of the kingdom? Because it is all of the restoration and all the promises that have been given through all the prophets that God is one day going to restore and rebuild and in perpetuity bring happiness and joy and singing and gladness to Jacob. That's going to happen when Jesus is sitting on David's throne when the kingdom finally comes. So proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, they shall return here. Here is Zion. Here is Jerusalem, the land of Samaria, the place that they've been given forever. He is going to go get them, and he is going to go regather them. Because he is the God who scattered them, so he knows where they are, he's going to go get them and call them back to their land. Now, just to make a point, when was the church ever scattered this way and called back again? No, you can't apply that to the church. You have to really spiritualize like a madman in order to say this is talking about the church. A great company. They're going to return here. And then look at this. Not only are they coming back with great joy, but then God says, with weeping they shall come. And by supplication, I will lead them. They're going to recognize their God. And they're going to come back weeping, repenting. They're going to come back knowing how sinful and rebellious they have been. And they're going to bow down before their God. Now, last week, we looked at a little bit of Ezekiel and a little bit of Daniel because they are contemporaries of Jeremiah. And we saw how they were all three saying the same thing and talking along the same timeline. At the end of the Babylonian captivity, when they were allowed to come back and rebuild, as the rebuilding began, there was a great deal of opposition from the people who had been living there for the previous 70 years, living in that area. They didn't like to see the nation of Israel coming back and rebuilding its walls, rebuilding its temples. There was a lot of opposition. And so God sent them prophets to come and encourage them to keep the building going and, and continue in this effort because, after all, think about the promises God has made you. One of those prophets at the end of the 70 years was a fellow named Zechariah. 
And so turn to the book of Zechariah, because I want to remind you here that Jeremiah says that they're going to come back weeping, and they'll come back with supplication. And through that weeping and supplication, he's going to lead them and make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. Turn to Zechariah 12 for a moment. I'm going to start reading Zechariah 12 at verse 8. Zechariah is reminding them of the promises that have already been made to them through Daniel, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them, oh, this is just like Jeremiah told us, the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's what we've been reading in Jeremiah. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn in that day. There will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimum in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn, every family by itself. The whole nation is going to be in mourning because they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. Remember that Zechariah is writing this about the piercing of the Messiah to come. And then Israel looking on him whom they have pierced. He's writing that several hundred years before Jesus was even on the planet, predicting that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come, was going to be pierced, was going to die. And in his return, the people of Israel were going to see him, recognize him for their Messiah, and God was going to pour on them that spirit, pouring out the spirit on David, on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and a spirit of supplication and repentance and of mourning. This is a time of national repentance for Israel that is certainly coming. The prophets keep saying it. Okay, so back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is going to add one more little detail. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. And I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Okay, he could be talking about the collective 12 tribes. He could be talking about just the northern tribes. But then he says, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, why would he have to remind everybody that he still knows that Ephraim is the firstborn and even says, my firstborn, because they are the ones that have the land inheritance promise. They have the right of the firstborn. God knows that. And here he is saying, I'm going to go get them and bring them back and give them to their land because they own that promise of the land. So God refers to Ephraim who are in a scattered state right now, have been for thousands of years, who the church has written off completely and decided that God is done with them, God says, well, that's my firstborn. I'm not giving up on him. I've loved him with an everlasting love. I'm going to bring him back to this land, back to Samaria, and oh yeah, I will be his God, and he will be my people. I find that rather inarguable despite the fact that I sound like I'm arguing. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. I'd like to underline that phrase. Just pay attention to the word of God. It'll clear up a lot of this errant theology. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. And declare in the coastlands afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather Israel and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. 
Again, not insignificant that when Jesus came to the planet, he said that he was here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's significant language. Why did he say that? Because he came to accomplish what God here is saying he is going to accomplish. It was Jesus coming to the planet, looking for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, dying and resurrecting, taking away their sin debt, and establishing the new covenant. It was Jesus who accomplished all these things that God is saying are going to happen. And so we as Christian people, as Christ-following people who ought to be paying attention to Christ and why he was here and what he was accomplishing, we should not be ignoring the very significant fact that he was here accomplishing what God sent him to do. He was the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of Israel. He is the Redeemer of Israel. We Gentiles, by God's wonderful good grace, have been adopted into that covenant. But the covenant belongs to Israel. I don't know how much more plain the Bible has to say it. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. We're supposed to tell this to all the Gentiles. Declare it in the coastlands afar off. And say, the same God that scattered Israel will gather Israel. And then protect him, keep him, feed him, nurture him the way a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. We use ransom language all the time talking about Jesus. We say that he was the ransom price that was paid. He gave himself his blood to redeem us. He paid a ransom price. But remember, he's the redeemer of Israel. And so Jeremiah can say in advance that the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him. Now we've got the redemption language. And redeemed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd, and their life shall be a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Is there any languishing going on in Israel right now? We'd have to say, yeah. I heard somebody just today say that they were looking forward to going to Israel, and then they caught themselves and said, oh, but not right away, not now. Yeah, because there's a lot of trouble in Israel right now. But the day is coming, says God, when they're never going to languish again. And then the virgin, the young girls, shall rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning, remember that spirit of supplication and repentance that he was going to draw them with? Eventually, he's going to turn that mourning into joy. And he will comfort them, And give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Remember that the priests lived off the abundance of the people. If the people were perishing, the priests had to perish. Because the priests lived off the tithes of the people. And so the very fact that God can say, the priest is going to have abundance, well, then you have to assume that means the people are overflowing with abundance, so much so that God says, my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Thus says the Lord, verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. Really important. God is in the details, and he knows the details, and he knows the history. I told you at the beginning of the evening that Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then he had two handmaids. Between those four women, he had 12 sons and a daughter. Rachel, the one that he loved, is the one that he ended up working 14 years for. He had made a deal that he was going to worked for seven years for Laban in exchange for Rachel. And then on the wedding night, uh, he pulled a little switcheroo and gave him Leah, the older daughter, so that the older daughter would get married before the younger. 
So he wakes up in the morning and is like, whoa, hey, you're not Rachel. And he ends up working another seven years in order to get the one that he loved. And then she was the barren one. The other three women gave him sons and daughters, but, but not Rachel. And then later in life, finally gave him Joseph. And that's why he loved Joseph so much and gave him that coat of many colors and of course, Joseph had all those dreams that someday his brothers were going to bow down in front of him. Even the sun and the moon, even his mother and father were going to bow down in front of him someday. Okay, so that's Rachel. Rachel later also had a second boy. That was Benjamin, the youngest of the 12. Rachel here is weeping. Why? Well, because the descendants from her, Joseph, Ephraim, look what it says about them. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's right, they've been scattered. They're out of their land. They're cut off. So thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they shall return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their own territory. Okay, real important genealogy. Who are the particular people who are the children of Rachel who were scattered, who were gone, who were no more? That's Ephraim, the northern tribes. And yet God says, stop your weeping. They're coming back. I'm going to return them to their land. That's real specific. That's the 10 northern tribes. That's Ephraim. And God, who's in the details, says those are the children of Rachel specifically. Now, I, I should also mention while we're here in this verse, and I've got a little bit of time, Matthew picks up that very verse, and he applies it to the death of the firstborn, turn over to Matthew for just a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, I do believe. Yeah, Matthew 2. We're going to start reading at verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled or came to its fruition. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and dreamed to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child, and head back. Okay, so Matthew took that little piece out of Jeremiah 31 and applied it to the fact that Herod killed all the firstborn. And commentators argue about this and try to figure out how it is that Matthew could make that connection because clearly the fulfillment of the promise itself and of the weeping of Rachel, the fulfillment of it is right in the text of Jeremiah 31. Restrain your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears. Your work is going to be rewarded. They will return from the land of the enemy. There will be hope for your future. Your children will return to their own territory. And so God has told you what the satisfaction is to Rachel's weeping. And yet when Matthew saw the mothers weeping over the death of their children, he went back and applied it. The most satisfying explanation for it that I've seen among the many commentators that I have read is that Matthew was not saying this is a direct prophetic fulfillment as if God had said, there's a day coming, this is going to happen, and then it happened. What Matthew was doing is that he was reminding the people of Israel, that this kind of weeping over the death of their children had been a hallmark of their history. This had happened before, it's going to happen again, and he was likening it to that, saying yet again the women are weeping over their missing children. It's a reminder 
that, oh yeah, Rachel has always suffered. So then, back in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 18. After all that, after promising Rachel that there is hope for your future and your children will return to their own territory, God then says, I have surely heard Ephraim, again, Ephraim, the northern tribes, the scattered, I have surely heard Ephraim grieving, and this is what they're saying. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised, like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for thou art the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote my thigh. That's just a sign of grieving. And I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. In other words, when I was young, when I didn't know, I rebelled against you. I went my own way. But then you instructed me, you chastised me, you corrected me. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You chastened me like I was an untrained animal, like an untrained calf. But then bring me back. This is that spirit of supplication. Bring me back so that I may be restored. You are the Lord my God. Just as God said, I will be their God. They will be my people. This day is coming when they are going to be instructed and then they're going to be ashamed and humiliated because they're going to recognize that they are bearing the reproach of their youthful indiscretions and look at how God answers. I find this astounding instead of God saying, yeah, that's right and I'm done with you. Instead, he says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against you, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart, God speaking, my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Astounding grace. Is there anything in Ephraim that deserves that kind of unconditional love? That kind of regathering, that kind of blessing? Okay, here, I'll personalize it for you. Is there anything about Jeff that deserves that kind of kindness? Or Tom or April? Is there anything about any of you? Is there anybody who's willing to say, yes, I deserve that? No. It is always a matter of God's grace. It is always a matter of God's kindness that he chooses people, that he draws people. He doesn't lose his people. He corrects his people. He chastens his people, but then he brings his people back to him because he is their God, and they are going to be his people. And despite everything Ephraim had done and their scattered condition, God nevertheless calls them his dear son, his delightful child. And even though he has spoken against them, he says, I still remember you, and my heart yearns for you. The heart of God yearns for the restoration of his people, not for the destruction of his people. And then look what he says. He says, get ready to go back home. Here's what you need to do. Verse 21. Set up for yourself road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway and the way by which you went. And return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. He's looking forward to the day because he yearns for them, because he's ever loved them. He's looking forward to the day when he's going to regather them, restore them, bring them back from all the places where he has scattered them. And he says, remember the way that you went. Remember your home. Remember how you got where you are. And so he says, like, set up road marks, kind of like dropping crumbs, so that you can remember the way that you went, so that you can trace your footsteps back to where you began. Place for yourself guideposts. And then remember, direct your mind to the way that you went, to the highway, 
and the way that you left. And then return, O virgin of Israel, return to these because these are your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? He just called them, O virgin of Israel, and then calls them, O faithless daughter. Because remember, you've been faithless, but you're a virgin in my eyes. Here, I'll try it again. So are you, uh, are you bad? Yes. Are you pretty bad? Are you very bad? Are you depraved? Are you sinful? Yeah, you'd have to say, uh, yeah, that's all true about me. Okay, yeah. Okay, are you forgiven? Okay, so in your eyes, you're the person who's still desperately trying to get through every day in this sinful flesh, fighting your sinful proclivities, and every once in a while you're reminded of how sinful you really are and how rebellious you are and how bad you would be if God ever let go of you. But in the eyes of God, you are already redeemed and forgiven. You're already justified, glorified. You're already seated in heavenly places. You already are the body of Christ. You are already and eternally joined to him. So it's a matter of perspectives. And God mentions both perspectives here, his and theirs. From their perspective, they are the rebellious daughter. They are the faithless daughter. From his perspective, they are the virgin of Israel. Because of his perspective, he's going to return them despite them. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. Starting in verse 27, he's going to describe the new thing. It's a new covenant. He's going to do something new in the earth. But then he says, for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man the Hebrew word is savav, which has a wide semantic range in looking for a word-for-word, one-on-one interpretation. The uh, NASB translators went with encompass. It does mean to encircle, to involve, to envelop. This new thing is a woman shall encompass a man And every commentator you want to read, check me out on this, they all say, okay, that's the toughest verse to figure out in the book of Jeremiah. We're not really sure what he's talking about here. But one of the most consistently satisfying interpretations I've seen of it is that Israel here, who he just referred to as a daughter and as a virgin, he speaks of Israel in the female. In that case, he would be the man, she would be the woman, And he said, I'm going to do a new thing. Instead of you being rebellious and running away from me, you're going to come and chase me. You're going to come and envelop me, encircle me. You're going to come search for me as your God. That might be the interpretation. What we know is the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. But then he makes it really clear. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Gives himself two specific and important names. He's the God of heaven, the hosts of heaven. He's the God of all things and everything. And he is the God of Israel. Once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities. Where's that? Jerusalem, Samaria, the land that they were always promised. Once again, they're going to be in that land. And while they're in that land, they're going to say this when they're in their cities, when God has restored their fortunes, just like he promised them at the end of chapter 30, they're going to say this. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. Can Jerusalem be called the holy hill right now? Not a lot, yeah, not a lot of peace and holiness going on right now. But the day is coming when Jerusalem is going to be at peace and when God is going to be resident there, when it is going to be the holy hill of God, and the blessing that people will give is, oh, bless the abode of all righteousness, the holy hill of Jerusalem. 
That blessing hasn't happened yet, but it's coming because he's going to restore his people, Jacob, very specific, to their land, Samaria, very specific, to the place where God placed his name, Jerusalem, very specific, his holy hill, really specific. There's just no way to say that's the church. You cannot typify that in a way that is satisfying and to say spiritually that somehow the church this is about Israel this is for Israel and if God meant that he was going to regather Israel and make a new covenant with Israel and restore Israel if that's what he meant what words would he use other than these because these words say exactly that so how much more specific does God have to be in order for us to go, well, okay, that's what he means. <laughs> that's what he said. Okay, I give up. You win. You're God. Okay, so here we go. I'm, I'm done. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah... And all its cities will dwell together in it. The farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. And then Jeremiah says, at this I awoke and looked. And my sleep was pleasant to me. He came from the vision and he just kind of went, that's very satisfying. I'm good with that. You'd think all this time later, we'd all be good with that. Because the very next thing we read, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And the same way that I watched over them to pluck them up and break them down, to overthrow and to destroy and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. And he's going to do that through a new covenant. Which covenant is the covenant that we approach God on the basis of? So it'll take us a couple of weeks to talk about the reverberations of the new covenant. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.